the rules of the economy have changed, how you get ahead and how you fall behind in this economy, how you just lead a, a middle-class life, all those things are kind of up for grabs right now as the economy shifts. And so this was an attempt to try to get a handle on some of those changes and figure out ask questions like who deserves what and why and who needs help and why and how how the resources of our world are distributed and kind of peel back the curtain on that. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital news innovation. On the phone with me today is Chrissy Clark, a reporter for American Public Media's Marketplace. Based out of Southern California, Chrissy just launched a new podcast. The Uncertain Hour looks at how real life intersects with abstract economics policy. Welcome, Chrissy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, first of all, congratulations on launching The Uncertain Hour. Thank you so much. We're really excited about it. As a fellow podcaster, I'm going to ask you a bunch of geeky questions about (laughs) podcasting. Um, So what can you tell us, first of all, about the podcast? What can people expect from it? Yeah, so it's called The Uncertain Hour. And um, just to give you a little bit of background, I am a reporter for a particular team at Marketplace called the Wealth and Poverty Desk. And so we look at, I like to say, sort of wealth and poverty and everything in between. And we look a lot at sort of the structural changes that are going on in our economy and and try to make sense of like, what is this strange, uncertain hour that, that America has found itself in in the early 21st century when it comes to it's just, it seems like there's a lot of questions out there right now about like the rules of the economy have changed how you get ahead and how you fall behind in this economy how you just lead a, a middle class life all those things are kind of up for grabs right now as the economy shifts and so this was an attempt to try to get a handle on some of those changes and figure out ask questions like who deserves what and why and who needs help and why and how how the resources of our world are distributed and kind of peel back the curtain on that. And so those are the big questions we're talking about. But we are also journalists who love good stories and good characters. So we um, then are diving deeply into some of the nooks and crannies of history and of economic policy to find kind of the people behind the scenes who make who make the world the way it is Uh-oh. in a lot of ways. Okay, the Illuminati, that's what you're talking about. Right? <laughs> well, or the that... our first episode we call it is is named the magic bureaucrat and oh. it's all about this one this one guy in Riverside, California who really kind of, you know, had a lot to do with how welfare as we know it now works and he just He's just this kind of eccentric guy in this town. And so finding people like that and their backstories and then the kind of imprint they leave on the world. It's funny you're talking about this. My, um, coincidentally, my my daughter asked us last night if we were middle class. Huh. And uh, we said yes, but then it was kind of like, well, what is middle class now? Why did you ask if we're middle class? You know, we're not poor or you know, we're not rich. I, I don't know what that makes us, but I, I assume it makes us middle class. That it? is really interesting. What what did you say? <laughs> yeah. uh, we just said yes and moved on. I mean, and we did you we say why uh, she wanted to why she wanted to know where. Uh, I'm not sure. And when I say my daughter, my daughter, my daughter is an adult, but she's also um, she's an adult with autism. So 
she she sort of, she'll listen to things. She has a sort of opinion about things, and and every once in a while she asks these sort of uh, very perceptive questions. And and you you know I I I, I was being a poor journalist last night. I should have circled back. And a poor journalist, poor parent. I should have circled back and says, "What do you mean? What have you heard? What is somebody? What do you know? Did somebody call while we were gone? Is the bank on the phone? Have you looked at is something come in the mail that you haven't shown us? All that stuff that we we need to be getting on." So now I'm worried. But it is such, I mean, I think that that idea of, you know, the middle class dream is so built into our sense of who we are as Americans. And I mean, it is a great question that your daughter asked is like, what is middle class and who is middle class anymore? And I think that that we don't really know anymore. Like that word gets bandied about so much. Politicians love to talk about how they're going to help the middle class. Everybody identifies as being middle class, but often were not. And, you know, and the idea of like who, who even is making middle wages anymore has really changed as the economy's changed. Yeah. Well, we, we definitely, I think Americans suffer from an identity crisis for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is our monetary system uh, of where we fit in the scale of things Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's, what's fair and what's not fair. And, you know, we, we have all of these TV shows. We have the Kardashians, which is all about, about fantasy and about wealth. And, you know, are we supposed to measure ourselves against the successes of that, you know, and fame? And, you know, how does that figure into our psychology and, and the perception of who we are? And, and what does that mean for us as, as human beings and, and measuring our self-worth? You know, all these big, deep, dark questions. If you could answer those for me in that order, <laughs> that would be well, helpful. Tune into our podcast okay. and you will understand all of that. Okay. But, but we, I, I sort of, one of the taglines that we have found ourselves using a lot when it comes to the podcast and to the uncertain hour is um, the things we fight the most about are the things that we know the least about. Because I think that that often is what happens when we get to these sort of, especially the thorny parts of the economy and something like welfare, which is what we're dedicating the first episode to, which is such a, there's so much stigma around that world, uh, around that word. I think so many people have an image in their mind of who who is on welfare, what welfare means. And yet, especially in 2016, 20 years after we ended welfare as we know it with a sweeping set of welfare reforms um, that were passed in 1996, we actually have very, like the average person has very little idea what welfare is, how it works, who gets it, who doesn't. And so that became this fascinating subject for me and my team that we have dived into in this season. Yeah. And, and so much of the political debate is is using the idea of welfare and the economy and you know the, the the budget as as a sort of a cudgel uh, to to beat back the the opposition as to and even the whole idea of you know quote unquote entitlements absolutely that, as a you know that becomes a, a bugaboo for for some as oh well that you know we we get rid of these entitlements well what is it, what are the entitlements and what are they you know what does that mean is social security an entitlement it's not because we actually pay into that right 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 and that word there are so many slippery words that we get thrown around but I think that the beauty of a podcast is you have time to unpack those words and to say what do we actually mean when we say entitlement and then the connotations of course of like the psychological meaning of entitlement of like just somebody who's who wants something that they don't deserve or that they didn't earn. So I think looking at 
the episode that just came out this week, we talk about that that word entitlement and, and all of the different facets of it and how it plays into this idea of of welfare and and, uh, and a social safety net. It's so funny that, that people sort of grasp onto words and concepts and then they use that inappropriately on all different types of, you know, parts of life. Things like um, people who get this sort of bare bones idea of what evolution is and, the, and they talk about like survival of the fittest. Well, you know, and then they apply that to all types of things that it really doesn't necessarily apply for. We, it's just something about our psychology that we have to, you know, grasp onto these words and sort of define the limits or, or like sort of shoehorn them in of the discussion of a very complex pro, you know, it's a way of, I guess, simplifying something that's incredibly complex. Yeah. Yeah. We want, I mean, we want to make connections between things and I think we, we all want to get a sense of like, what does this mean? How do we fit it into our understanding of the world? But I think that sometimes an issue like welfare can become, it gets on this runaway train in a political debate. And so we wanted to sort of hit pause for a moment and say, okay, what are we really talking about here? Before we start fighting about it, let's clarify all these terms and figure out where the money actually goes, how the system really works, what is the history of it, which, you know, there's so many fascinating stories that get into civil rights and sort of dark histories of discrimination in our country and in terms of how the the welfare system was originally built and conceived. So it's it helps you understand a lot of things about our economy just by starting with this simple question of like, well, what the heck is welfare and how does it work? So what what got you interested in this type of reporting in, you know, in finance and, you know, the economy? Yeah, well, I I started Really, in um, 2007, 2008, 2009, in the recession, I was doing a lot of reporting in Las Vegas, actually, which was a place that earlier in my in my reporting career, I had covered as a place that was one of sort of the last places in the U.S. where the middle class dream was widely possible. It was sort of considered the Detroit of the new Detroit of America because there were so many pretty well-paying jobs that you didn't need a college education to to qualify for, all the casino jobs that, you know, the service industry was this big hope, the great hope in the American economy. That's where the middle-class jobs are going to be. And so I'd done reporting about kind of the, the economic promise that Las Vegas held out for the country. And then the bottom completely falls out in Las Vegas. Las Vegas had one of the highest foreclosure rates in the country. You know, the casinos were falling apart in terms of their, nobody was going anymore. And it goes into this sort of dark time and talking to people and and hearing their experiences of, of feeling like they were achieving the American dream. They had climbed their way into the middle class and then the bottom falling out like that and just this disorientation of like, I worked so hard to get here and now what has happened got me really wondering, yeah, what what has happened? Like, what is going on in our economy right now? And I think that was kind of the beginning. That was the first set of stories that really got me hooked. And since I've been at Marketplace for the last four years, I've had the privilege of, of covering these questions um, in, in lots of different ways. It's interesting. And you're telling human stories because these are the way the economy changes the economy, you know, affect the way people live and yeah. have very dramatic and sometimes painful stories to tell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
But anyway, no, you're, you're talking about how that. It, it, I was just thinking. Now we are. We're, it's May. Is we're getting into graduation season, and I was just thinking about way so many years ago, much probably longer than than you've been alive. Uh, when I was coming out of high school, you know, I grew up in Indiana, which you know was a you know is a Rust Belt state now. But when I was there, there were there was a good percentage of our, our class that was graduating that was not going to go to college, that was either going to get a factory job or, or had a job somewhere, a good job somewhere that they would be able to do straight from and launch on to some sort of career. Mm-hmm. And, and that just doesn't even, doesn't even seem to exist anymore for, mm-hmm. for large sections of the country. Yeah, I think that that is one of the things that the rules have kind of changed around that. And, and actually, one of the one of the uh, episodes we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks on the uncertain hour is looking at how the changes in um, the way that cash welfare works in this country, how they have played into access to higher education for low income families, because there are so many work requirements now involved in qualifying for cash assistance. It means it's much harder for somebody who's receiving welfare to actually go to school. It used to be that going to school was counted as a work activity, but the rules have have tightened over the years around that. And so it starts to get to this issue of how in a country and in a world where to make a, a livable wage, it's really helpful to have a college education. But if you haven't had the means to ever get there, sort of where that leaves people. Yeah, and and we then the, the uh, there's the other issue that that you hear a lot from millennials uh, about the fact that they have so much debt because they are trying to do what they they need to do to to get a career to start a career is to to go to school. And, you know, pay for it the only way I guess they can. And so, you know, now they're they're strapped with big student loans that they're, they're going to have to pay off. That's going to be a burden as they go through as the early parts of the career. Yeah. So, you know, where's the quality of life in this? That's what I say. <laughs> so let's let's circle back to to the whole idea of the podcast that, that, that you've you've launched this this podcast. Now, you you did this as uh, well, one of the things I found kind of interesting. And this is me being a nerd about about podcasting, is that um, you announced that you're doing this as a season. Um, How many episodes are there going to be in a season? So there are going to be, in this season, five to six episodes. And I say the five to six because I also happen to be in my third trimester right now and I'm pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to get these podcasts out, lady. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Our hope is six, (laughs) barring an early delivery. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's that's a pretty good excuse, I guess, for missing a podcast. I joke that I'm I'm having I'm having six babies right now. One is a human baby, and the other are these podcast episodes yes. that we're making. So, um, but it, now, does the first season have follow a particular theme? Yeah. So the first season is all about welfare and what welfare is. How twenty years after we quote unquote ended welfare as we know it. What is it? How does it work? Who does it help? And the idea here is sort of to understand our economy today. You really need to understand what we do for and about those with the least in it. And so this is taking a, a deep, deep dive into it. I sort of joke that it's like it's the serial approach to podcasts, but for an issue rather than a, 
a fascinating murder case or um, or or soldier in the desert. We're sort of taking welfare and really just picking it apart. Like we start with um, the the reformers. We kind of get in, into the minds. The first episode is all about, as I mentioned, this magic bureaucrat who um, earned the name the magic bureaucrat for creating this this riverside miracle. This sort of welfare to work seeming utopia in the 1990s that got a lot of attention. And one of the ways that he did it was he made these synth pop songs all about welfare to work and um, work ethics that ended up making their way to Senate hearings in during welfare reform and kind of inspired a lot of the policies that are now written into law in terms of how how welfare works. And so we we found this kind of fascinating character and fascinating CD <laughs> that you can hear on the podcast of all of these 90s songs about, about moving people off of welfare into work. So each episode sort of starts with a big question and then dives into kind of a surprising story connected to it. Well, and I think your approach uh, doing uh, the six episodes around a particular theme is, is is really unusual. I think a lot of people, when they think of podcasts, they're thinking of a podcast that's coming out, you know, every week or, you know, every couple of days or something, uh, something like that. But I think there's more opportunities as we go forward with, with sort of packaged podcasts. I think serial showing that you can, you know, just do a season, you can do 10 episodes or whatever, and uh, just do a di- deep dive into something. Yeah. And quote unquote sell it out of that. Have you thought uh, beyond, I, I realize that you're in your third trimester and you're, you're, you're muscling to get these, these podcasts done. Have you thought maybe where you might be going in the next season? Yeah, we have, we have a couple of other um, ideas for our, our next seasons. Right now we're, we're really focusing on welfare and trying to look at it from all different angles. It's sort of like a crash course. Slate did a great series about slavery uh, last year, I think it was, that was a very inspiring model for us, uh, where it's like, yeah, let's just, I think that there's an appetite for really trying to understand an issue. And I think that podcasts have such a, um, have such a great opportunity for letting people when they have the time, when they're doing their laundry or they're driving or they're, you know, they, they crave getting that kind of immersive experience. And so we thought, let's do this. Let's sort of have this, this crash course in an idea or in a question, and then we can move on in the next season to another idea, another question. And so we haven't confirmed which we have a couple of ideas we're playing with. One is kind of looking at who invented the American dream, sort of where are different conceptions of um, how America became the place that people from all over the world come to, to try to make it and and to try to find a better life where some of the the origin stories of, uh, of those ideas that we have. There's also um, another story that we're researching right now that involves a murder case in Los Angeles between two homeless men. And sort of that became for us this very interesting window into living on the streets and justice on the streets and what what the world looks like from that point of view. So um, each it will be it'll be very different season, very different topics each season, but all getting to these larger questions of who deserves what and why, who who gets what and why, and sort of how our economy works when it comes to 
getting ahead and surviving in America. Another type of journalism that, that I understand that you you're, you practice is, is location journalism. Could you sort of describe the, the thinking behind that? Yeah, um, this is something I've always just been very, um, very interested in the way that place fits into to stories and into the way that the world works. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my family has lived there for many generations. I think we're fifth, I'm a fifth generation San Francisco Bay Area. And so when I was growing up, my dad, who had also grown up in, in that area, wherever we were, whenever we were driving somewhere, he was always pointing at things and saying, that used to be something else. You know, that used to be that. That used to be that. I always was very aware of the stories and the layers of stories that sort of made a place what it was. And so that's been often an organizing principle in the journalism that I do is like, how did this place get to be X? You know, why, why did San Francisco become the gay mecca of the world and the gay sort of sort of the places where people could come and feel feel safe uh, to to live their lives and express their sexuality and are all these fascinating often they come down to in, in the case of San Francisco a particular quirk of the way that bars were regulated in San Francisco after prohibition that meant that often the people who were sort of governing bars and, and keeping an eye on drinking establishments were more concerned about the revenue that they were getting because it was the tax collectors, not a, a different entity of the government that was monitoring these bars. And so it meant that these bars became these sort of safe spaces where things could happen. And, and you know, these sort of interesting little moments in history that then give birth to unexpected consequences. So um, that's a kind of storytelling and journalism that I've always been really interested in. We recently at Marketplace did a uh, a big a big investigation around the gentrification, where we sort of drilled into one place in Los Angeles, one neighborhood that has been going through a lot of changes in the last couple of years, and asked the question of why why this place, like why of all the neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Was it this one that suddenly became hot and became the place where you could, you know, lattes were $5 when only a few years before you couldn't even get a latte in that neighborhood? You know, I think that so we kind of set up shop in Los Angeles, in this neighborhood, Highland Park, and did a deep dive into that question. So that's kind of one example of uh, the location-based journalism that we've done. So what what did you find? Was the Did you find a cause as to why that suddenly became the it place? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's. it's never as simple as, well, it was just this one thing, but there were some really interesting factors that we started to uncover. I think one thing, you know, a phrase you would hear a lot among residents, both old-timers and newcomers to the neighborhood was like, well, it just happens, you know, change just happens. And what we kind of learned was it doesn't just happen. (laughs) There's actually this whole group of people, often real estate developers and um, real estate agents and this whole kind of what I came to call the, the gentrification industrial complex who they are, I mean, this is their job. They are making money off of neighborhoods changing. And so they are scanning property records and looking at the bones of buildings and looking at the property values of different places and sort of have these metrics that they're using to hone in on a neighborhood that they think is ripe for that change. And then they go in and they have 
big plans for that for that neighborhood. And often it starts with just the seed of one one coffee shop that then they can point to and say to all their clients, look, this place is changing. And then it sort of builds this momentum. So it was really interesting to talk and get into the, the minds and the strategies of some of these real estate investors and real estate developers about how they pick a neighborhood. And as one, as one of the folks that I talked to said, you know, an up-and-coming neighborhood never looks like an up-and-coming neighborhood. So he's always looking for the one that, that is under the radar because that's how you make the most margins. That's how you get a big return on your investment. Wow. So probably the perception for a lot of the people who move into that area or who see sort of see the thing changing, like, oh, the wrong type of people are moving in. These new type of people are coming in and changing it. But it's basically there's somebody who who sees a, you know, an economic boon in the future for, for a particular area, you know, maybe buys up land or, or gets investors or maybe, you know, there's some favorable zoning or, or planning about a certain area. Absolutely. And, and they, they're the ones who kind of push it. And then suddenly there gets a little heat and people start showing up and businesses start showing up and then suddenly you have a bone. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And so we, we, we got to speak with some of those, you know, we, we, we got inside the strategies of some of these these folks who are early on kind of picking up a neighborhood and saying, let's let's do this. <laughs> like, let's go big here. And I, I, you know, I would speak to investors who they had bought up five or six buildings on the same block because they had their vision of we were trying to make this neighborhood be the next hot neighborhood. But of course, to anybody who who moves there, they're just like, I don't know, I just suddenly a bunch of my friends were moving here and I it seemed cool and I moved here too. <laughs> like they, they, they don't know those reasons necessarily. Yeah, yeah, that the apartment building that you moved into or, you know, or had been renovated, you know, that was somebody's conscious action to do right. that. Right. And, that's, and, that's their business. That's their business. That's how they're making their money. And that's sort of fascinating because, uh, you know, I used to work at a, a weekly newspaper. I was an editor of a weekly newspaper. And one of uh, the great places that we would get stories from were, were the planning commission meetings mm. and, and all of the, you know, and it was all the same sort of thing that, you know, investors would come in, builders would come in and, you know, they, they see something, they see a neighborhood that maybe is being underutilized and or, or there's just sort of an opportunity there and they want to try to get the zoning and the planning changed and, you know, the, the, the neighborhoods around it sort of they come out in, in objection or in favor of it because they don't want to see development because development and when development occurs, you know, it's boom and it's, it's a huge explosion and, and things change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It's, it's fascinating to see the sort of the institution uh, or the institutional way this process occurs. Right. Sort because, of peeling back the right. curtain of, or pulling back the curtain and like, oh, here here are the people behind the scenes who, I mean, that's just, that's the way the world works. That's the way governments right. work and policies are set that then suddenly you're walking down the street and you're just wondering, why are there so many fancy new stores? <laughs> or, or you're, you know, it's, it's the same as anything. I mean, you're going down like, why are they, why are they, you know, putting a new exit here on the, on the highway? Right. That's the first I ever heard of it. Well, probably not. I mean, it probably has been in, in planning for a decade and yep. was going through the the governmental process for for a year and a half. You just never bothered to notice. Absolutely, yeah. So there's this secret stuff going on behind the scenes <laughs> that we need to get to get cracking on to to try to figure out what's going on. So the the project you were talking about that was that York and Fig. Yes. And one of the things that that you and you kind of alluded to it 
is that you put up a pop-up studio in in there because you're I sh- you know something we didn't really talk about is actually you work for a radio station. Yes, <laughs> a, a radio show. Yeah. Okay, I want to make sure we get that. So, so, but you did a, a pop-up studio in this neighborhood. Yes, we. Uh, so the headquarters of Marketplace, the radio show that I work for, are based in downtown Los Angeles. And we convinced our, <laughs> my team and I convinced our editors that it would be an interesting and worthwhile experiment to set up a little pop-up bureau about it's about five miles north of our main studios in this neighborhood, Highland Park, that was undergoing so much change. And so we rented a storefront in on this right at the intersection of these two streets, York and Figueroa Street, which people sometimes refer to as Fig, hence the name of this project, York and Fig. And we rented a little, uh, it had formerly been an accountant's office and he had retired. And so we, um, we rented out this little spot and set up a studio there. And that's where we did all our reporting from. So we actually had a little sandwich sign on the street where we would invite people that invited people in to come tell their stories of when they had moved to the neighborhood and what they were perceiving as the changes in the neighborhood, whether they were excited about them or scared by them or angry about them. So we got just this wonderful cross-section of people who'd lived there for 30 years, people who had just moved in two weeks ago and got their stories. And that was part of the project. We did a, a whole video series where people sort of went into the into the, the recording booth and, and talked about their experiences and, and feelings about the neighborhood. And then we also, because we were actually renters on this street, and watching the foot traffic and had to f- had to work with within the real estate world to find the place where we were going to rent we got this interesting access to real estate agents and and kind of the players in this neighborhood who are really kind of stoking stoking the fires of gentrification there and 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 are trying to get this neighborhood to be one that gets more investment and wealth into it. And so we got this this interesting inside perspective on that world. That's a really cool idea. I, I like it for, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, you're immersive. You're you're in the neighborhood. You, mm-hmm. you, you are part of the people that this story that you're covering is going to cl- is going to impact, you know, as a renter, as somebody who's actually at that intersection and then also, you know, it's engaging in the community that you, you've opened your doors up to have people come in and, and offer their perspective. Yeah, and, it was really neat. And it was, you know, it was surprising things happened. There was one night, actually, where the uh, some folks who lived in the neighborhood who were very frustrated with the changes and, and felt like it was really pushing out a whole group of longtime residents, somebody went around as sort of a form of protest and was tagging buildings and with paint and was some of the newer businesses was writing gentrifier on it in big orange letters. <laughs> and so we showed up at work uh, the next day and they had tagged our office <laughs> gentrifier. And we thought, oh, this is this is maybe deeper into the story than we were expecting. You're part to get. of the problem. <laughs> yes. 
you're, but, you're an intruder. But it became a really interesting, you know, I think that raised this whole other set of questions for us of like, one, kind of the meta, well, are we just by shining a light on this neighborhood and trying to look at some of the causes of the change, are we inadvertently bringing bringing more gentrification to the neighborhood but but then also just the question of like what does that word mean who where is the money coming from that does fuel gentrification so it kind of that's i mean that's sort of that's the most exciting time when you're covering a story and you start to see start to see it shift and change and and are actually in the in the midst of it in the field interacting with people about it so it was a uh, it was exciting and, and unexpected. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting journalistic and philosophical conundrum, yeah. <laughs> because it's it's the it's the old you know uh, you know by observing are you changing exactly the thing? exactly as a journalist the Heisen, was is it Heisenberg's principle or something? Yeah, yeah, that you you <laughs> have you have suddenly other oh, Schrodinger oh that's cat. it that's you, it, you've yeah. you have suddenly become part of the equation mm-hmm. and, and how does your presence affect the uh, the equation? Yeah, uh, huh. Interesting. So before we we wrap this up, I, I wanted, well, t- first of all, you're in your third trimester. I, I, I take it you're going to be taking time off? A little bit, but then I'm excited to get back to the podcast. So. Okay. <laughs> is, this, is this your first uh, uh, little one? Yes. Yes, it is. Very exciting time. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Very excited. stressful time too. But yeah. uh, well, good luck with that. Um, so, what what can people expect? Uh, well, first of all, let's talk about some of the basics. Uh, when, when a new episodes come out? Yeah. So um, we they come out every other Thursday, and the season started at the end of April, and it will go through late June, early July. Okay, cool. And uh, where can people find these episodes? They are on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts, or you can go to marketplace.org slash podcasts and you can find it there. Okay. Well, I wish you luck with this. Podcasting is a a wonderful adventure, Uh, almost as good as having a kid, but it's up there. (laughs) Yes, I'm enjoying it. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on. Next time on It's All Journalism, in our next podcast, we talk to our old friend Tiffany Shackelford, the executive editor of the Association of Alternative News Media. It's our annual conversation about AAM's upcoming conference. This year, it's going to be in Austin, Texas, July 7th through 9th. Uh, they got a lot of great guests lined up. We talk a bit about that. We talk a little bit about the work that AAM's been doing the last year or so. And uh, if I can get some time, I'll also record a little bit and uh, give everybody an update about what's going on with the podcasting book. I've had a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of research. It's really been kind of a fun experience so far. And, uh, well, we'll see what I have to say. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. 